Well, we'll be in Luke 23 this morning if you want to turn there. You want to make sure you get an outline if you don't have one. Uh, I'm sure the ushers can bring it in. Uh, a devotional approach for you to take home with you. Uh, it's not really, especially the front side is not really uh, sermon material, so to speak. It's more devotional as we uh, consider Christ uh, because we want to make sure uh, we give you an opportunity to interact not with church, not with religion, but with Jesus Christ himself. Uh, and that's what the Bible is given to us for, uh, not just as good literature, uh, but as a place where we see Christ. Uh, and if the ushers out there, Rob and Sebastian and those guys, uh, if you have some extra outlines, if you could bring those in. Of course, uh, Dr. Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke, uh, as well as what other New Testament book did Luke write? Book of Acts. In fact, Luke and Acts are a two volume set. Uh, Luke coming first and then the book of Acts. And Luke, we know, was a doctor. And so he's going to be very concerned or uh, very careful with details, uh, especially uh, with the details of Christ's trial and with Christ's suffering uh, and Christ's crucifixion, uh, being a, a doctor. And of course, each gospel we know, if you need an outline, I think Rob's got some if you want to hold up your hand. Uh, each gospel presents Christ in a different picture or a different portrait so that we can have a fuller uh, uh, appreciation of him. And I know I've asked you this before, so we're going to keep asking again. Uh, John presents Jesus as God. Matthew presents Jesus as king. Uh, Mark presents Jesus as man. And does anyone remember Luke presents Jesus as? Ooh, some of you are getting good. OK, gold stars. Servant. Luke is careful to present Jesus as the suffering servant, uh, serving people constantly, uh, giving of himself. And we see that uh, even in this chapter that we will look at. Uh, seven encounters. I kind of went back over this. There may be more than seven encounters if we uh, include the soldier who was at the foot of the cross, but he didn't really exchange words. He had an encounter with Jesus, but it was a nonverbal encounter. These uh, all involved uh, conversation. Uh, so we already know that uh, back in Luke 19, uh, Jesus came into Jerusalem as a king. Uh, as the true king, as the real king, fulfilling prophecy that was written 483 years earlier. Uh, now, here's the thing. Uh, it was good and it was OK that the people were saying they accepted him as king, though we find out later they really didn't. They didn't understand most of them. But this is a legitimate offer by Jesus to the nation of Israel. But. It had to be accepted by those in leadership in the nation. The scribes, the Pharisees, the teachers, the Sanhedrin. But of course, they were on the other side, weren't they? They were hell bent on his death, his execution. If those leaders had accepted Christ as their Messiah, as their king, do you realize that the millennial kingdom would have started right there in that moment? We would not have moved on any further in earth time as we know it. There would have been the thousand year millennial kingdom set up on earth at that moment going right into eternity if they had accepted him as king. It was a legitimate offer. 
Psalm chapter two, verses six through nine, tell us that Jesus was the one and only true king of the world and that he has been installed from eternity past by God, the father on that throne in Jerusalem. It has now been delayed because of Israel's rejection, but it is coming because it is promised in scriptures from beginning to end that Christ will reign over an earthly kingdom. So the author, the offer on that Palm Sunday was real and it was legitimate, but it was rejected. And we know from Daniel chapter nine that only Jesus could have fulfilled that prophecy of the triumphal entry. Only he could atone for the death or the sins of all mankind by his death. He and only he. But. As Jesus shows us with his own life, we must learn in our lives that thorns often have to come before crowns. Right? And that's what Satan was all about, trying to get Jesus to skip the suffering, skip the thorns, skip the cross, and just get straight to the good stuff, get straight to the crown. But Jesus taught and Jesus showed us by his example, but that's not how it works. Oftentimes there must be suffering first. So let's look uh, at this. Uh, what was happening during Jesus last week? Uh, the trial. First of all, we know we're going to put the gospel four gospel accounts together to just sort of review uh, what happened, uh, especially from the moment he was arrested in the garden uh, the day before the night before he was crucified uh, so that we can get an appreciation for Jesus in his suffering, Uh, the book or the letter written to the Hebrews toward the back of your New Testament, you know, uh, that presents Jesus as our high priest. Uh, And it's interesting and encouraging that it says there that as our high priest, he understands our weaknesses because he has suffered just like we do. And so that when we are struggling, we can go to him because he understands like no one else. Now, it's interesting that the Jews were very proud of their legal system. And I think they should have been because at the time of Jesus, they had probably the best, the most fair, equitable, uh, put together legal system on the planet at that time. And it came out of their Old Testament scriptures. God had told them that truth must be central in your legal system because God told them, I am truth. God is truth. So the Jewish leaders were commanded by God to constantly be focusing on the pursuit of truth. That's why as we start to move through these or this trial of Jesus, actually, it was six separate trials. It was a sham. It was actually illegal the way that they tried Jesus. And Luke is trying to show us Jesus was utterly innocent and Jesus was wronged. But also that Jesus remained obedient to his father's word, even when he was wronged and mistreated. Being victimized was not used by him as a reason to abandon God's plan. Hmm. We are tempted often, aren't we? I'm going to follow God. I'm going to obey God. I'm going to do what God asked me to do. Then at the first sign of resistance, plan B. In the face of the strongest resistance against his humanity that any person has ever known, 
he stood firm. So Deuteronomy and other places talk about this pursuit of truth in the Jewish legal system. In fact, every town had a local court called a Sanhedrin. You know, we're reading through this account, you see, of the Sanhedrin. What is that? That's a, some kind of word I don't understand. Each village, each Jewish town had a small version. But in Jerusalem was the great Sanhedrin, what we would compare to our Supreme Court. We don't need to take those rabbit trails, but boy, is it tempting. Okay. Gorsuch, is that Jewish name? No. Okay. But the Sanhedrin had 70 men that came from three different categories. So remember, Jesus is being tried illegally by the Jewish Sanhedrin. The great council, the Supreme Court, it was made up of 70 men. The chief priests, who were mostly the Sadducees, who didn't believe in resurrection. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in a lot of things. And you know what I'm going to say, right? You're waiting for it. They didn't believe in resurrection. That's why they were sad, you see. Okay. Then there were the elders who were the religious and secular aristocrats. I always want to say aristocats because my kids always watch them. And then the scribes who were made up of the, the experts in the Jewish law who were mostly the Pharisees. So these three groups, these 70 men are the men that night. And by the way, his illegal trial didn't even start until just after midnight, which we'll see that is a violation of Jewish law. Uh, no capital cases were allowed to be tried at night, only during the day. But we'll see that in a moment. The very things that the Jewish leaders accused Jesus of, they committed the very sins. Blasphemy, hypocrisy, lack of mercy, lack of compassion. There were some legal requirements in the Jewish system to try somebody of a crime. They had to give the person a public trial. Did Jesus have a public trial? No. We'll see in a moment. He did not. It wasn't even held in a court. It was held at somebody's house in the middle of the night. The accused was supposed to be allowed to pull together a defense and to call in witnesses on his own behalf. Did they give Jesus that opportunity? No. And there was supposed to be a confirmation of guilt by two or three witnesses. And the scriptures tell us that those religious leaders, they tried and they tried and they tried to bring in witnesses. They even tried to get people to lie against him. But they became so frustrated. The scriptures tell us they found no basis for a charge against him. And that just made them even angrier. Just made them even angrier. He was innocent. So the Jewish leaders were violating their own legal codes. I can't remember the reference, but I read this week. There was a verse in the Gospels that says that the religious leaders did this because they were jealous of Jesus. Their hatred was motivated by jealousy because he was popular, because he was doing miracles. He had a huge following and that was having a negative impact on their not ministry. I don't want to call it a ministry uh, on their sheep. The Jewish law says that if somebody lies while they're serving as a witness, that they must receive the punishment that the person who's being accused would have received. 
So the Jewish religious leaders, they call witnesses. They can't find any. They themselves bear testimony against Jesus. And it turns out that they're lying. Their own testimony was a lie. So according to their own law, they should have received the punishment that they gave Jesus. Hypocrites. Yeah. Just flat out lying. Viciousness. Venom. And for the most part, except for just a couple occasions, Jesus just stood there silently. Which, by the way, don't think of Jesus as a victim. And, and that makes his death that much more powerful and meaningful and should cause us to be even more grateful and thankful. Because he said, nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own accord and I will raise it up again on my own. And what did he tell Pilate? Pilate said, don't you understand? I have authority to put you to death. And Jesus said, what? You would have no authority over me unless my father above had not given it to you. So this march to his death, this dead man walking, it was by his own will, his own choice. He was completely in control. In their murderous zeal to convict and execute Jesus, the Jerusalem Sanhedrin violated all the principles and fairness of their legal tradition. How? I just want to show you some specific things to be very specific about it. They conducted the initial trial at the high priest's house privately, not at the temple where the law stated that it had to be done. And the law stated it had to be done during the daytime and they did it at night. He had no defense in fact, it was illegal in the Jewish system for the high priest to even render the verdict. And yet Caiaphas did. They're breaking laws left and right. Jesus falsely accused of blasphemy. He never committed blasphemy. They did. Their law said you have to have two days to render a verdict in a capital offense. Well, they rendered theirs in less than one day. Again, breaking their own law. Jesus was tried on a feast day. They were celebrating feasts. That's why everybody was in the city. Passover. Breaking their own law. And their law said if you had witnesses who gave contradictory testimony, then that evidence had to be thrown out. And as you read the testimonies that they're bringing against him in the scriptures, they conflict with each other. My point here is he's being... To put it lightly, we can't use enough words to describe the illegal trial that was being motivated by their hatred, by their jealousy. And yet Jesus is in control. He knows what the father's plan is. He had already asked the father if there was another way. Please, father, don't let this cup come to be. But his father said, no, it must be this way. So now he voluntarily is going to follow this through. So Jesus' trial by fire that night comes in six phases. He has three religious trials before the leaders. We'll see in a moment. He goes to Annas' house first. Then they send him to Caiaphas. Then when dawn breaks, they get the whole group together. But then we also see him before Pilate, who sends him to Herod, that sends him back to Pilate. 
So you really have one trial, but it's got six different phases. And we keep hearing again and again and again the whole time, not guilty, not guilty, not guilty, not guilty, not guilty. Until finally, when he goes back to Pilate the second time, the people are just pressing in on him. And the religious leaders are just being so violently threatening to Pilate, basically, to say, we're going to tell Caesar. We're going to contact Rome and let him know what you're doing, Pilate. And finally, Pilate says, OK, he just washes his hands in the whole thing. Pilate said Jesus was not guilty. Even Herod did not pass sentence on Jesus. And the religious leaders knew he wasn't guilty. But earlier, remember, the high priest said, it's going to be better that one man die for the whole nation than that our whole nation perish. In other words, we're going to offer up one sacrificial lamb to Rome so that maybe it'll bring us some good. The religious leaders were threatened economically and theologically by Jesus. So the John 18 tells us that Jesus goes to Annas' house first. Who is this person? The high priest is Caiaphas. Annas is his father-in-law. Why would they send him there? Well, because he was rich. He was powerful. Five of his sons had already been high priest and his two of his grandsons and now his son-in-law. Very powerful, very rich. And we know from history, very greedy. When we see Jesus in the temple overturning the tables of the money changers, that's money coming out of Annas's pocket and his sons and his grandsons. They would come to offer offerings and the religious leader would say, no, you don't have the right coinage you have to exchange it and we're going to charge you a fee to exchange it and they would say oh you don't have the right animals that you brought for sacrifice here buy these animals that we have for sale at a marked up price and they were padding their pockets and twice jesus drove them out of the temple so he is greedy he is threatened economically and by the way he's not even in official capacity of any office And yet he conducts the arraignment or the preliminary hearing. He has no legal standing to even do that. But they only take him there because he's very powerful and very rich. And what does he do in the book of John? He tries to get Jesus to incriminate himself. You know, he's trying to find some dirt. He's trying to find some law that Jesus has broken. And it doesn't happen. And so Jesus says, you know what? Why don't you bring in some of the people who know about me and let them testify? And what happens to him? One of the Annas' servants strikes Jesus right in the face. So they're not really interested in pursuing truth. So Annas sends him to Caiaphas' house. So the Sanhedrin, it says, the scriptures tell us that the whole body, I think, minus Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, because later we'll learn that they're true believers. So maybe there were only 68 there. But the whole group gathers at his house, illegal. They gather for a trial at night, illegal. They gather privately, illegal. They gather on a feast day, illegal. They don't call Any witnesses, illegal, they render a verdict illegal. They don't care. 
Remember, this is all happening between midnight and dawn. Jesus is probably just physically exhausted. Have you ever been up way past the time you should be in bed? You're just dragging, exhausted. Your head's not even in the right place. Unless you're a 20-something. That's when you just get going, I guess. So when you sleep till 2 p.m., you can do that. Okay. I'm just teasing. I'm just teasing. Guilty. No, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. He had already been scourged. He would already been hit. He was probably exhausted. I'm sure they hadn't given him anything to drink or eat. So he goes to Caiaphas' house. He is desperate. Matthew tells us, he asked him, are you the Christ, the Son of God? I am, Jesus says. And he says, from now on, you will see me at the right hand of the throne of God, and then I will be coming in the clouds. And then what does Caiaphas do? He fakes it. He feigns like he's horrified. And he rips his robe in two, which is a way of saying, this is utter blasphemy. This man has uttered blasphemy. He's guilty of death. That's all just a put on show. They already knew what they were going to do. Go to Mark. Keep your finger at Luke 23 because we're going to get there. But Mark, look at Mark 14. Verse 63. Well, start in verse 61. But Jesus kept silent and did not answer. Again, the high priest was questioning him and saying to him, are you the Christ, the son of God, the blessed one? He keeps asking him over and over again. Jesus finally says, I am. And you shall see the son of man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven, tearing his clothes. The high priest said, what further need do we have of witnesses? Do you see, you know, you should gasp when you see that. What need? Why do we need witnesses? Why do we need to bother with the law? He's already said. It is interesting how quickly people abandon the law if that means that's what they have to do to get what they want. Verse 64. You've heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. That's interesting, too, because, you know, that's illegal. If they all voted unanimously to condemn someone... The Jewish law says he is to be immediately set free because that shows absolutely no mercy. According to the Jewish legal system, there had to be at least one vote against what everybody else voted or else they have to set the person free. Because a unanimous vote to condemn someone to death shows a lack of mercy. And God is merciful and forgiving. So they broke their own legal law once again. Verse 65. Some began to spit at him. Here's the interesting thing in a morbid way. Some refers to who? Has to refer to those people that were present. Who's present? The Sanhedrin. The religious leaders of Israel. Those 68 men who are to be the example of righteousness and godliness to represent God before the people. They spit At Jesus. And in that culture, of course, spitting on someone is the greatest mark of showing contempt and disdain. This isn't a rabid mob doing this to him. This is the religious leaders. 
doing this to him. They blindfolded him and then what? Beat him with their fists. These are the religious leaders. Hitting. It's like they are totally out of control. They're like a rabid, monstrous pack of dogs. Spitting on Jesus, punching him in the face, mocking him, saying, prophesy. And the officers who then he was given to, the legal officers or the soldiers or policemen or whatever you want to say, began to slap him also in the face. What a scene. What a lawless, dark, ugly scene. But Jesus still is in control. So then, to cover their tracks, if you go to Luke 22, Luke 22, verse, starting in verse 66, we see that they try to cover their tracks. Oh, we're not supposed to do this at night. So, verse 66 of Luke 22, when it was day, the whole council of elders of the people assembled, both the chief priests and the scribes, and they led Jesus away to their council chamber. Well, finally it's public. Finally it's daylight. But this is just to protect themselves. If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I do tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you a question, you will not answer it. But he says again for the second time, from now on, the son of man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And then they all said, are you the son of God then? And he said to them, yes, I am. Then they said, what further need do we have of testimony? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. So to cover their tracks, they do a little sham sunrise gathering. Chapter 23, verse 1. Then the whole body of the religious leaders got up and brought Jesus to Pilate. The Jews, though they condemned Jesus, they could not execute or render a verdict of execution under Roman law. It had to be the Roman governor who was Pilate. Verse 2. They began to accuse him, saying to Pilate, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. So Pilate asked Jesus, saying, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him and said, it is as you say. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man, not guilty. But they kept on insisting, saying he's stirring up the people, teaching all over Judea, starting from Galilee, even as far as this place. You know, Pilate's trying to figure out what's going on. He's not Jewish. I mean, he understands a lot of the Jewish life because he lives there. But the whole group comes to his house to ask him to do what they could not do. And even though Pilate washed his hands in the whole thing at the end, the book of Acts tells us. That the religious leaders and Pilate and Herod were all guilty of the death of Christ. We want to stop and pause. Go to Matthew 27. Because sometimes, somewhere, and I don't want to dwell on it, but it's Palm Sunday, Easter coming. I thought we should mention this. Somewhere during the night, Judas finally got hit with what he had done to the Lord. 27.3 of Matthew. Then when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, that Jesus had been condemned, he felt remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. 
But they said, what is that to us? You take care of that yourself. And he threw up the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and departed. And he went away and hanged himself. And then to fulfill scripture, I'm going to paraphrase, the chief priest took that money and they bought a plot of land so that people could be buried who couldn't afford it. And that fulfilled the scripture that said 30 pieces of silver. I'm in verse nine is the price whose price had been set by the sons of Israel. And they gave them for the potter's field uh, for or as the Lord directed me. Here's the thing, just real quickly. Judas was so overcome with guilt and anguish and shame and depression. So overcome that he killed himself. But he did not repent. That's what we need to see about Judas. Overwhelming psychological, emotional anguish is not the same as repentance. And God requires repentance. And you know, if Judas had repented, he would have been forgiven. But you know, human, sinful human pride is so deep, so complex, so stubborn, that a person would rather take his life to escape the pain than repent. And what is repentance? Repentance is agreeing with what God says about what I have done. And then striving to turn and go the other way. It's a spiritual thing that has outward physical reactions. So Judas was overwhelmed. And you can look at 2 Corinthians 7.10 sometime that talks about the difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. Just wallowing in depression and despair and remorse and worry and anxiety and anger. That does not bring healing. That does not bring transformation. That is not repentance. And it is repentance that God is after. Not just sorrow. So Pilate. In Luke 23, 1 through 25. He's the Roman governor of Judea. He's proud. He's arrogant. He's confident in himself. He's confident in his authority. He's known to be very brutal, ambitious and highly political. In fact, the scriptures in the Gospel of Matthew talk about how Pilate had ordered the death of some Samaritans. uh, And then he took their blood and he mingled it with the sacrificial blood in the temple in order to send a message to the Jewish people. Don't mess with me. He was brutal. He was ruthless. He was ambitious. He was greedy. He was arrogant. He was powerful. And he was perplexed about Jesus. Later on in our account, as Pilate is interacting with Jesus, Jesus says, everyone who listens to my voice listens to truth. Pilate said, what is truth? Pilate was cynical. He was skeptical. And it led to despair. Those who do not believe that there's any way to know any source of absolute truth. Are afloat in despair in a world of competing ideas. At the mercy of man's 
thoughts. And I'll let you know, history tells us that Pilate was banished by the Roman government and then he killed himself. The great Roman governor who presided over the death of Jesus Christ lived in despair because he rejected the truth and he killed himself. That's what happens. I know this doesn't feel like a Palm Sunday message. You're like, where's the warm fuzzies? He's trying to figure out, is Jesus a threat to Rome? Is Jesus a political or military king? Why are these Jews so bent on this man's death? He's trying to figure out. Pilate says, not guilty. Because Jesus tells him, I am a king, but my kingdom is not of this world. Not of this realm. You say correctly that I am a king. That's why I was born. That's why I came into the world. And I testify to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. But Pilate, being skeptical and cynical, said, what, what is truth? Well, how many people in our world today wander around? What is truth trying to find their way? Looking for answers in so many different places. Jesus said what? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Now, let's look at a fox. Not a good fox like my wife. Let's look at a fox. Look at verse 6 of Luke 23. In the Gospel of Matthew Some people came to Jesus and said, hey, Herod said so and so. And Jesus says, you go and tell that fox that I'm doing miracles and things are happening. And the people were just shocked that Jesus, I thought Jesus was a God of love. He just called this guy something really bad. Well, he's speaking the truth. Verse six, when Pilate heard this, he asked whether this man, Jesus, was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, because Herod ruled, he was like a secondary ruler who ruled for Rome, but only in two areas, an area called Perea. Ben and Zuli were like that. And the area of Galilee. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, in verse 7, he sent Jesus to Herod, who himself was also in Jerusalem at that time. Now, Herod was very glad when he saw Jesus because he had wanted to see Jesus for a long time because he had been hearing about him and was hoping that he could get Jesus to perform some miracle for him. And Herod questioned him for a long time, but Jesus said nothing. Why would Jesus say nothing? Herod, too, was a murderer. He, he killed many of his own family members to keep his power. He built huge buildings, he had gargantuan building projects because he wanted his name to be exalted. But he was a man of no morals. He was sexually immoral. He married his own niece, uh, had her divorce her husband, Philip. He had no principles whatsoever. And the word fox at that time meant someone who was crafty and worthless. That's why Jesus called him a fox. He's a schemer and he's worthless. He has no integrity, no morals. So he was just hoping to get a dog and pony show out of Jesus. He wanted to see Jesus do some tricks. This is the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the creator of all the world that we're talking about. 
He wanted him to do something. And Jesus remained silent. Why? Because the scriptures talk about not giving what is holy to dogs and don't throw your pearls before swine. And that's what that's why he remained silent before Herod. This man is only making fun of me, mocking me. He's not a true seeker, so I'm not going to do anything for him. Skip down to Luke 23, verse 26. One verse. But this may be the most wonderful thing in the whole story. When they led him away, when they led Jesus away to to go out to Golgotha with this cross to be crucified, they seized a man named Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country and placed on him the cross to carry behind him. So who is this man? This is a very, uh, very interesting uh, story here. Cyrene is modern day Libya in northern Africa. And at the time of this event, there was a tremendous Jewish population there, second only to Alexandria, Egypt. In fact, the book of Acts tells us a few days after, you know, the resurrection and all that, that there were so many Jewish people from Cyrene in Jerusalem for the feast that they even had their own designated synagogue while there. So Simon is a Jew. He's a pious Jew. He comes for the feast with his family, we're told later. And we would think just randomly out of the crowd, the Romans pull him out. Which, by the way, was legal and it was not uncommon for the Romans to do that. In fact, they would make people carry their own cross so that everyone would know they were guilty. Now think about that. In God's providence, he did not have Jesus carry his own cross. Why not? Because he was not guilty. Isn't that interesting? And this could be a tale of two Simons. Simon was a common name. A lot of people named Simon. Where was Simon Peter? Here's Simon of Cyrene, a stranger we've never heard before. We see him in one verse. And where was Simon Peter? He was hiding. And this would have been a very humiliating, disgraceful, shameful thing. You're in town for the Holy Feast. You're working and doing everything you possibly can to keep from being becoming impure so you can participate. And they pull you out of the crowd and say, you're going to carry this criminal's cross and everybody's going to see. It would have been a spectacle. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people because Jesus was well known and popular. Plus, they always had huge crowds come out with a morbid interest in seeing someone crucified by the Romans. Random from a human perspective. But what about from the perspective of evidence, the perspective of providence? Was this just an accident or a random act? Absolutely not. God providentially draws this man into this humiliating act. And the scriptures tell us the gospel of Mark and the book of Romans mentions this man and his wife and his two sons. They became true believers in Jesus. Isn't it interesting how God can take the most humiliating things that happen to us and use them for his glory and for our good? If we let him. We know from the scriptures that this church 
or group of churches in Libya and Cyrene grows so strong that they end up sending missionaries to Antioch. And there's a man from that church in Cyrene named Lucius who's actually acting as a pastor when Paul and Barnabas show up. And there would have been no church of true believers in Cyrene if this man had not been pulled out of the crowd and forced to carry Jesus' cross. Isn't that interesting? Fascinating. His humiliation, his shame, his weakness became the means for great good to happen. So I guess I would say, when humiliating, shameful, embarrassing, difficult, suffering, hard things, we encounter those things, we don't despair, we don't toss in the towel, we don't give up. We submit to whatever God asks us to do to either rectify it or to get through it. And we have faith that he will use it for his glory and our good. Then we see verse 27. Just a couple more here. Look at Luke 23, 27. And following Jesus was a large crowd of the people And of women who were mourning and lamenting over him. Now, remember, these are not the women who loved Jesus and who were at the cross. His mother, Mary Magdalene, and all these other women. These are paid mourners. If some of you are really good at crying, you could have made a good living. It was a common practice. It was a common practice to hire professional mourners who follow or come to the funeral or participate in the procession. To lame it and to wail and to cry and to, and to grieve. If you're afraid nobody's going to show up at your funeral, just hire some mourners beforehand. And then they can all just come in and, you know, carry on. Everyone will go, ooh, he was loved. Look at who. Except who are those people? But when you think about the moment and you think about what's happening, even though they were professional paid mourners, Just the context, and you check it with the other Gospels, they had to have felt some genuine sorrow and empathy for Jesus. I mean, they weren't without feeling. And this is quite the spectacle. And when you stop to consider what Jesus looked like, the scriptures in Isaiah say he was marred. His figure was marred more than any other man. And we know that's not just hyperbole. That's not just for literary effect. As morbid as it is, one writer I read said, if they had cut Jesus' head off and tossed it out in a field and somebody picked it up and found it, they would have had no idea who he was. He had been beaten and hit so severely. He was unrecognizable. So these women surely were empathetic toward him. Not friends and family, but they did probably have genuine sorrow and tenderness, but not true believers. Aren't many of us like that today? We like Jesus. We're sympathetic with his cause. We speak well of him. We believe in the right of religious freedom or whatnot. But we don't know him personally. He's not our savior. There's a big difference. Notice. In verse 28, how does Jesus respond to these women? He doesn't thank them. He actually rebukes them. 
But Jesus, turning to these women, said, daughters of Jerusalem, which was a common phrase. He was speaking to the whole nation of Israel. Stop weeping for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. He says, I'm not the victim here. You are. And this is while he's on the way to the cross. He's having this exchanging these words with these women. His last words to the entire nation of Israel are words of judgment. In verse 29. For behold, the days are coming in A.D. 70 when the Romans utterly destroy and burn down and massacre the entire city of Jerusalem. Which is a preview of the final judgment that will happen when the Lord returns to the earth in the clouds with his angelic army. That's all squeezed into verse 29. Those days are coming when you will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, mountains fall on us and to the hills cover us because of the suffering is so great. And if they could do these things to me, the green tree, what's going to happen to you, the dry ones? So he's warning them about the judgment to come. The nation has rejected me. Don't cry for me. You should cry for yourselves and cry for the people. What about the thief on the cross? Verse 32. Two others also who were criminals were being led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place called the skull, they were crucified with him. The criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. Jesus in the middle. Informing us that every person has two options in life, accept Christ or reject him. Verse 34, but Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. That's both a general prayer request saying, Father, forgive these people for this great heinous sin. In other words, he's saying there is no sin so great that it cannot be forgiven. And then specifically, He's saying, Father, allow these people to be forgiven if they seek it. And by the way, that was fulfilled during Peter's sermon in the book of Acts. Thousands of people came to saving faith in Christ. They had been forgiven. They don't know what they're doing. And they cast lots and they divided up his garments among themselves. And the people stood by looking on. And even the rulers were sneering at him, saying he saved others. Let him save himself if he's the Christ, the son of God, the chosen one. And the soldiers also were mocking him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine and saying, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. And there was put a sign above his head that said, this is the king of the Jews. And one of the criminals who was hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. The other gospels tell us that both the thieves, both the criminals at first were hurling insults at him. But something happens in verse 40 to this one thief. We think probably also a murderer. But the other answered and rebuking him said, do you not even fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly because we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And so he said to Jesus, he was saying he was repeatedly saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That is a salvation story right there. And Jesus said to him, truly, the word truly is important. He says truly because he says what I'm about to say is shocking and almost unbelievable. 
Here we are hanging out here on the point of death. You're at the end of your life. You've wasted your entire life. But truly, listen to this. I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. This is what I like to call deathbed theology. It's never too late to accept Christ. We can never move so far away. We can never be involved in too heinous of a sin that cannot be forgiven. This man recognizes that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God, and that only by God's grace can he be saved. After some more hours of suffering, he's in paradise. Don't give up on those hard cases. You keep witnessing, you keep praying, you keep encouraging, you keep giving scripture. And if a friend or a loved one professes Christ on their deathbed, you can be assured that moments later they'll be in paradise. It's not the best plan. (laughs) That's not what I would recommend. But not, not to be funny, but you know, staring death in the face can scare the devil right out of almost anyone. It's legitimate. It's sincere. It's real. The Heavenly Father, we see Jesus saying, Father, forgive them. We know from other scriptures, Jesus utters seven sayings from the cross, which we're not going to get into those. First, Jesus, not first, but one of the things he says is, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Or why have you left me? As Jesus took on all of our sins on himself, his father had to turn away because he cannot look upon sin. And yet at the end, the last thing Jesus says is, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. After payment for our sin was finished, Jesus and his father were restored. In Jesus, when he says, into your hands I commend my spirit, He was in total control of the moment when he would die. Total control. Lastly, Joseph of Arimathea. Look at verse 50. And a man named Joseph, who was a member of the council or the Sanhedrin, he was a good and a righteous man. He had not consented to their plan and action. And he was from a place called Arimathea, a city of the Jews. And he was waiting For the kingdom of God. That means he was a genuine seeker. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And he took it down. And wrapped it in a linen cloth. And laid it in a tomb. Laid Jesus in a tomb. Cut out into the rock. Where no one had ever lain. This is fulfilling a lot of prophecy. Somewhere along the line. Joseph accepted Christ as Messiah. The gospels tell us he was a secret disciple at night. Because he was afraid of the other religious leaders. But now what is he doing? Is he afraid now? Oh, no. He goes to Pilate and he asks for the body. That's not fear. That's courage. The secret disciple is now a public disciple. And he bought an unused tomb not far from the cross that fulfills prophecy. Did you ever wonder why it says they laid Jesus there? Well, because Passover was only a couple hours away, they couldn't be doing these things during Passover or they would be impure. And it was the Jewish practice to lay a body on a type of a shelf 
in a tomb. And then after the body decayed, they break apart the skeleton and put it in an ossuary or a box. The Jews do not bury their people underground. All Jewish people, if they're uh, serious about their faith, they're buried above ground. So if you visit Israel and you visit the graveyards, it's just filled with thousands of boxes, stone boxes full of bones. That's why he said filled with dead man's bones. You know why? Because they want to be near when the Messiah returns. They don't want to be underground. That's what they believe. But it fulfilled scripture. It says Jesus uh, was assigned with the wicked in his death or in a grave, meaning with the thieves. Yet he was with a rich man in his death in a tomb purchased by Joseph of Arimathea. Also fulfilling what Jesus himself said, the son of man, just like Jonah, must be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So laying him in that tomb fulfilled that as well. And notice how the providence of God, normally if a person was accused of a crime and crucified after they die, like those two thieves, they weren't given a proper burial. They were taken over to a pit or a hole and they just throw their bodies in there. But Jesus had to raise from the dead. And out of love, his heavenly father provided a proper burial to him. So Joseph, and the scriptures tell us Nicodemus joins him. Remember Nicodemus from John 3? They put their lives on the line. They declare their allegiance to Jesus. Nicodemus spends a great amount of money for the spices and the perfumes to wrap up the body and the cloth. Lay Jesus in there. Get home for the Passover. They'll come back later. Take care of all the final details. Now. Think about how God has providentially or how God providentially worked in every situation to accomplish his purposes, even in the death and the trial of Jesus. Where have you seen God's providence in the difficulties in your own life? You know, God doesn't abandon his children. No, we don't preach like some social prosperity preachers that say, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. I mean, that is true. But we're speaking especially spiritually, not monetarily or physically. But look at the minute detail that was all under the control of God, under the control of Christ. So this week, take that outline with you as a devotional guide. Think about which of the people that you encounter in Luke, toward the end of Luke 22 and Luke 23. Who are you most like? Who do you least want to be like? Who do you most want to imitate? We looked at those women. We looked at Pilate. We looked at Herod. We looked at the thief. We looked at Joseph of Arimathea. We looked at the Heavenly Father. How would you describe Jesus in these, his encounters during the last moments of his life? He was still concerned about others, even in the very last moments of his life, still serving, still helping. If God divinely, supernaturally, in every detail of his son's dying moments, if he superintended there, he will do the same for you, not just in your death, but he will divinely, providentially superintend every detail of your life. And folks, that means... The worst as well as the best. 
It can all be used for discipleship. But it takes repentance. It takes humility. It takes bowing before Christ. Sometimes we have to have those thorns before the crowns, right? But if we let him, our Lord can turn any thorn into a crown. Let's stand together. Let's have a word of prayer. We want to recognize our Lord's providence, his control over the last moments of his life. We want to note that he willfully, consciously made the choice to die for us. Let's bow our heads. Let's pray. Father, help us to humble ourselves before you in this story or this account. We see people encountering the same Jesus and yet some reject him, some accept him. Father, give us the faith to accept him. Maybe like the thief who for the first time gained eternal life because he placed his soul into the care of Jesus as the Savior. Maybe more like Joseph of Arimathea, who had been a believer for a while, but he was secret about it. Hiding out of fear. Help us to be more courageous, more purposeful, if that has to be in our faith, in our profession. So we thank you, Heavenly Father. May we dwell and meditate and ponder these things this week. As we reflect on our Lord's last week of life as he heads to the cross to give us eternal life. And Lord willing, as we gather here a week from today, we can celebrate because the story is not over. We can gather here and celebrate that Jesus has risen from the grave. And he has conquered death, conquered fear to give us eternal life. And as he was raised from the dead by the same power, we too will be raised. So, Father, may this be a week of great reflection, great meditation, a week of serious consideration of our commitment and our loyalty to our Lord. If we had been there, if we had been there during these times, how would we have acted? What would we have done? What would we have said? Thank you for your forgiveness through your son, your love, your mercy, your kindness and patience. And we'll leave here today giving you and our Lord all the glory, all the honor, and all the praise. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks so much for being here, being patient. Lord willing, we'll see you next week.